Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. For the second half of these interviews, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash pryingpriest. But for now, enjoy the show. Welcome, Dr. Gail Wolfstock, to the Prying Priest podcast. Uh, you are uh, not the first American. I've had uh, at least one other American. Uh, David Greisel is an architect from Kansas City, uh, and he came on the podcast. But uh, I believe you're in Chicago. Is that right? No, actually, I am in Ohio right now, visiting my ancestral home in Youngstown, Ohio. So um, I do mm. live in Chicago, though. That's my main home. So. Oh, okay. But you're in Youngstown right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering before... So the usual process of the Prying Priest podcast is I want to explore um, kind of a bit of your past, how you came to be formed with certain beliefs, uh, whether it be your family or your culture uh, or or all of that stuff. But before we do that, I think it would be worth um, maybe giving a bit of rundown of uh, what you're doing uh, nowadays. Um, I believe uh, you are a professor at um, Northwestern. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a professor at Northwestern University. Uh, in the Department of Radiation Oncology. I'm also Associate Dean of the Graduate School at Northwestern, so I'm uh, kind of busy. I have a research lab that actively is doing radiation research and nanotechnology research, so I have my hand in too many pots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you also have a lot of experience in um, uh, seminaries and uh, the the intersections of uh, faith and science in, in the yeah, yeah. academic context. I actually context. have, in right? addition to my PhD, I have a Doctor of Ministry degree in Orthodox Theology um, that I got from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. So because I have that kind of dual uh, function, I'm a scientist on the one hand, I also do some Orthodox uh, theology on the other hand, I get pulled into a lot of religion and science dialogue. And I teach mm-hmm. at a few seminaries. I just finished teaching bioethics at St. Vlad Seminary. I teach um, at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and I've been teaching at Lutheran School of Theology for decades now. It's very sad how that goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is your favorite class that you've ever taught? You know, I really love my religion and science classes at Lutheran School. um, But, uh, you know, I guess I love all of them. You know, I mean, the group at St. Vlad's has a very interesting dynamic, a lot of priests there, so that gives a different uh, difference. Pittsburgh Theological, I get to teach evolution, which is my very favorite topic. So I don't know. I, I, I'm one of these people that likes everything I teach, and the day I'm doing it is the best class ever. So, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Uh, well, maybe let's take a step back and go kind of into your younger days. Uh, what were you interested in first growing up? Was it scientific questions or religious questions? Yeah, um, I was. it was sort of a little bit of both. In fact, um, when I went to university, well, actually, I'll take a step back before that. When I was still in high school, um, one of our uh, parishioners had gone to St. Vlad's Seminary, Father Dan Rohan, who's still a priest actually here in Youngstown, Ohio in the Syrian diocese. And and Danny used to come over to the house and loan me books. So I would read all of his books from seminary. And I was like, whoa, this is great. I mean, this this is, I loved it. Um, And then I went to university and I actually majored in philosophy for like my first two 
quarters. But at the same time, I always had an interest in science. I, I think I liked science because I, I felt like it was another way of exploring God. It was another way of understanding creation. And um, and so I, I got more and more into science. And um, it was an easier route for a girl to go through in those days rather than trying to go through seminary and go through theology. And um, I think at the end of the day, I, I just I also liked the fact that in science you could ask a question and then go into the lab and try to answer it. And I thought that was something really, really cool. So mm, yeah, and and I, I feel being in a philosophy class, you wouldn't necessarily have that ability to put those questions under a microscope. No, that's right. That's right. And you know, you have to realize that was undergraduate school. So the questions you explore in philosophy in undergraduate school are kind of uh, mundane, as are the scientific questions, actually. But I got a job working in a research lab at university, and that's what I love. That w- that became my my favorite thing to do experiments. So, mm-hmm. and then what was so before you went to university? Then uh, what was I guess what was your experience of faith in the sense of did like did you go to church regularly? What were your parents yeah, like? Yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. My of my, my family formation? was like deeply embedded. I'm Ukrainian Orthodox as you as are you, and mm-hmm. um, I was my family was deeply embedded in the church. I mean. My when my grandmother was young, the priest used to live at their house. Okay, so so I grew up in an environment that was very churchly. My uncle went to seminary to, in order to become a choir director, um, which was common in those days. Um, and um, and and so and and so I always went through, you know, went to every church service. And in fact, I was sort of forced to go, even if I was, you know, very tired and didn't feel like it. But I think. You know, during my university days, I went through a little bit of questioning. Um, and th- this is like, you know, I was an experimentalist even then. And so I, I like made up my mind that I was going to be an atheist for a year and just try it out, see how it went. Um, and I found that I was fighting myself so hard after about three or four months that I couldn't bear it. It was tearing me up because I, I would still feel like, oh, I should pray now. And then I'd stop myself. And I decided, nope, obviously that's not the right thing for me. And so I came back to the church with a greater gusto than ever. And um, mm-hmm. But I really do encourage people to question everything they've been told. I mean, I think the church wants people who really believe, not people who believe because their parents do. So. Mm, yeah. So can you speak a bit more about that decision to live like an atheist for a year? Like that... I mean, that never hit my mind to do that in college. Is that right? Well, like, the thing yeah. is, I had a lot. Of, you know, I had a lot of friends in high school and at university who were atheists, and we used to argue quite a bit. Um, had different perspectives, obviously, on things, and and they were always bragging about how great it was to be an atheist, and I, I actually couldn't see it. So I decided, well, I'm going to live that way. That's the only way I know to do things is to do an experiment. So I did the experiment. And um, I guess you could say the experiment failed or you could say it succeeded, depending on which side uh, you wanted to see. But it was it was just not for me, for sure. So. Mm-hmm. W- were there any was there anything that you actually took from that experience and and added it to your faith or to your practice at all later? No, I think I think I quit being afraid to pray and do all those things that I was doing. Um, so I, I became less I, less 
I became more um, accepting of going to church, kissing icons, all those things that, you know, you kind of do automatically. I stopped doing that. I mean, I would not kiss an icon. I would not make the sign of the cross. And I, I'll, I'll never forget, I, my, we had a habit in the family of whenever you were leaving the house, you would cross yourself and I wouldn't do it. Um, and then I decided I was going to just stop. And then when I started doing it again, I felt more, I felt, I felt, I felt it more closely. And I felt like this, this is, it was like I'd shown that this was right. I wasn't doing it because everybody else always did it or because they told me to. I did it because it was right. It was what was right. Um, and that made me feel very comfortable. What was, what was the reaction of your friends uh, when you when you tried this uh, atheistic experiment? Were they uh, cheering you on? Some were cheering me on, yes, that's for sure. And others, you know, who were believers were like, were kind of like, well, she's going through one of those phases, you know, that's yeah, of- yeah. It kind of reminds me of when the uh, Amish young people leave their uh, colony for a bit just to see what the world is like. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's that was sort of it. That was sort of what it so. I'm actually mm-hmm. glad. I mean, I remember that experience so strongly even today that I'm really glad I did it because I'm not sure I would have the same faith today had I not done it. Yeah. Um, I know somebody who tells me often that um, he wishes that every Christian would spend time away from the church so that they could actually see sort of, on one hand, how crazy it all is, um, but on the other hand, how important it all is. Um, so yeah, did you did you feel that you did it kind of long enough to be able to look at the church as an outsider? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't really think so. Mm-hmm. But um, I think when I was at university, I did step away from the church for a lot of reasons. I mean, I was heavily embedded when I was in high school. I mean, I was teaching church school. I was active in our Ukrainian Orthodox League. I was, um, I, I, I did... I did Girl Scout projects about the church. I was very, very invested. And during university, I did, maybe of necessity, I don't know, but I I stepped away from all that. And then when I came back, it was with different eyes than I had um, when I was there. I also moved away from after, I actually stayed here for university in Youngstown, but when I went to graduate school, I moved away. And I think that that moving away from your home parish makes you look at the whole whole situation differently. Um, I started going to an Antiochian parish in Toledo, Ohio, and I actually started to experience how different um, different traditions are, and I found that to be very useful. Now, to tell you the truth, even when I was in high school, I mean, when I was in grade school even, a lot of my friends were Jewish, and I went to synagogue with them lots of times, went over for Seder. So I kind of knew other religious traditions and valued them and appreciated them. And that was something I think that was very important to me growing up too. Mm -hmm. So I asked about uh, your friend's reaction to this uh, atheist uh, experiment. What about family? Um, My parents, you know, they were surprisingly tolerant. Um, I I, I think again, they kind of felt like, you know, let it go. She'll find out. And it was, it was, it was the truth. Um, but they, mm-hmm. they didn't, I don't remember that they said, oh, you're, you know, this, you, you, this is going to cause problems for you. This is wrong. They, they were just, you know, they, I, I mean, I did tell sell it to them, sell it to them as an experiment. So I said, look, I need to do this experiment. I need to actually believe, come to the faith because I believe it, 
not because of how I've been indoctrinated. And so they mm-hmm. kind of accepted it um, pretty well. Mm-hmm. They were very happy when I came back, however. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Understandably so. Um, were there any moments in either sort of your young your young life or maybe uh, after this atheist exper- experiment um, that you would characterize as um, a seminal moment or a threshold moment um, in your kind of life story, if that makes sense? Oh, boy, there are, I think, a little few... Diff- Far too many is the problem. I mean, there were mm. a number of things that happened to me in my before the experience that probably made me made me get through it more easily. Um, I had a remarkable priest, Father Olenek from Canada, actually, who um, I wanted to stud, I wanted to do a Girl Scout uh, badge in for the church, and you know they didn't have them. I mean, now they have the Cairo Award, they have the Alpha Omega Award for Boy Scouts. I mean, they had all these. Have, have all these now, but they didn't have any then. And the only one I could find was what's called the God and Community Award, which was actually designed for a Protestant group. So I went to my priest and I said, you know, I want to, I want to do this, but it's not meant for us. When you look at what they expect you to do, it's not at all the right stuff. And he says, you know what, I'm going to work with you. And we, we, we work together to change the rules and let the Girl Scout, you know, the, the main, Center for Girl Scouts, let them know we were doing this. And in fact, I think because he worked with me so hard on this, it meant a lot. And he made me memorize all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was like, I was, I really worked on this. Um, And then when I got my badge, my whole Girl Scout troop came to church. And I'll never forget, they asked so many questions about stuff that I took for granted. You know, like they were, they were, they were asking about why are you kissing icons or that we had a guy who would always kneel before his icon of his patron saint. And they're like, why does he kneel there? And I, and I had all these questions that came to me about things that I just never knew anybody would question. And that had a very, very deep impression on me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess that leads me into the next question, which you answered there, but I'm sure that you have uh, more examples of the first time that you kind of had that feeling that you were a fish out of water or that the, the first time that you had to explain your faith or that you had to interact with uh, somebody that had no idea what was going on? Well, I mean, certainly all through high school, there were in my school, it was probably about 50 to 60 percent Jewish. There were two Orthodox. One was a kid in my school who was Serbian and in my grade. And there was another a girl who was, I think, two years younger than me, who was also Serbian. And we kind of knew each other and, you know, hung out a little bit and talked a little bit, but we were bizarre to everybody. And that that situation of being so strange to everybody was how I grew up almost my entire life. Um, you know, the, if, if, you did, if you were Christian, you went to the Methodist church down right next to the school, or otherwise you, you were Jewish. Um, I can't say anybody was critical of it, but it was just like they treated it like it was something very, very foreign. What was a shocking day to me was when um, we had a school assembly and they had four um, uh, different, four or five different, um, you know, pastors, ministers, whatever, stand in front of the in front of the whole built room, the class, my whole class, and talk about what each of the religions said. And I was shocked, but 
they actually had an Orthodox priest there. And I was shocked that my school thought enough to bring an Orthodox priest in because there were so few of us. But I was also shocked at the kinds of questions a lot of the other students asked because they didn't know they didn't know a lot. And yet they were still willing to explore. And I found that very interesting. Mm-hmm. So when you when you start growing up, you start maybe thinking about the larger questions in life. Um, do you remember any of the first couple or first of those big issues that really um, captured your kind of theological imagination? Well, I guess I guess what I would say is, um, I, I don't know how to put this and make it not be too rude for people, but there were many things in the church that I questioned. Um, I was told that like, this is how the church feels and this is how you have to feel about about things, and I, I didn't always agree with it, um, and and I wasn't sure where to go with it because the the church had a kind of what felt to me to be a monolithic view on certain issues. Um, I, I'm I'm trying to think of some that would not horrify your listeners a little bit too much, um, but but you know, but things like uh, views on abortion. I'm not going to say I, I was pro-abortion, but I actually knew girls who had gotten an abortion, and I do, I did feel like there should be some sort of opportunity for girls who were struggling to be able to get an abortion. And the church was so adamant about it. I mean, it was, it was, it, 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 the, the stand was so firm, and I felt like I'm not this. This for me is very, it's, it's, it, it hurts me to think about where my friends might be. In, in that circumstance. Now, okay, I was young. I had a limited experience. I might not feel that same way today, but those kinds of views kind of shook me up. Um, and then I went to a number of conventions and conferences, not so much that they happened during the daytime, but we would sit up at night um, in, in our rooms until three or four in the morning and talk about these issues among ourselves. And then I started to feel like, well, Everybody has these questions. And and so maybe that's okay to question. And then when I got older, I realized that like, lots of people question these things and it's okay. But but I went through a, a period where I almost worried that I that this was so inconsistent with what I felt that it was becoming uh, problematic. Mm-hmm. So uh, you grew up uh, within well within the Orthodox tradition. Are there any other religious traditions that you were exposed to that you find uh, perhaps c- pretty conducive with um, Orthodox Christianity or an easier time to, to um, connect with people maybe about scientific issues if you both share kind of a particular religious background? Well, I mean, today, certainly there are many. I mean, you know, I teach at Lutheran school and Lutherans have had, I think, a very good attitude about religion and science. Um, it's informed, you know, a lot by their history, but um, but I, they, they they can come to the dialogue very easily. Um, I, I there are a lot of Roman Catholic um, scholars that I've worked with over the years, and they're the positions the Roman Catholics have. I can actually feel close to. I've spoken at several Jewish synagogues. In Chicago and elsewhere, actually, and I I find that that 
we we share common ground, and I find that um really interesting. I'll never forget. I gave a talk on um cloning at a Jewish at a Jewish synagogue, and the rabbi and I were talking, and he says, "Well, I don't know what the problem is. I mean, after all, Adam was a clone. So what what do you think? You know?" And I, I was kind of shocked at his perspective there, but it was it was pretty amusing. Um, yeah. What, what did he What did he mean by uh, Adam was a clone? Well, God just created Adam out of nothing. So he came from a single cell that grew into many, right? So that was sort of his idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in any case, I, I found – so I I, can, I find a lot of kernels of truth in a lot of places. And, you know, especially I do a lot of work with the environmental movement. And I really believe that – I mean, we share so much among all of ourselves. I mean, I can find Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist views about environment that – resonate with orthodox views so much i sometimes feel like if we all got together and you know kind of rallied around the cause we could we we could do a lot of good together um so there are a lot of common themes despite um you know despite differences in dogmas and teachings and stuff my my joke all the time is that if if you get a bunch of religion and science people around a table and you talk about what your religion teaches you will fight but if you talk about something outside of yourselves, like what do you think about this thing in science? What do you think about this thing in science? It there's tremendous agreement. So it, it's there are a lot of common mm. themes. There, there's this common misconception that science and religion don't actually fit together. Uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe speak a bit about how you've had to deal with that uh, in various ways throughout your professional uh, career. Yeah, I mean, you know if. It's really weird. That's maybe one gift that orthodoxy gives us is that there's not this big discrepancy between science and religion. Our, our you know, the, the church father, St. Basil the Great, he, he was a scientist. I mean, you know, so, so we're embedded in science. And while that science was maybe ancient and we wouldn't agree with all of it today, it certainly was was there. Um, I, I, I feel like in, in me, they're not separate. I feel them actually as one thing. But there are some people that feel strongly that, to take views against certain things in science, and they feel like their church is, at, is, at, is in battle with it. Um, I'll never forget, I taught a course in evolution, and um, a student in the class came up to me and said, Gail, if I believe what you tell me, I have to, I have to leave my church. And he's and I have to quit my God. And I said, well, maybe you know, maybe your God's too small. Maybe you need a maybe you need a bigger God than the one you have, you know. And um, he, he stuck the course out, by the way. And it mm. turns out a Catholic scholar taught him told him the same thing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, are there any particular figures or authors that were very helpful to you in times of uncertainty? Well, my my favorite author is um, Sergei Bulgakov. Um, when I was when not so much when I was young, but when I got to be older, evolution became a difficulty for some people in the church, and um, and and I couldn't really find anybody that was taking a good stand on it for Orthodox. Um, Sergei Bulgakov wrote. He died in 1949, and he wrote a number of books where he actually. In the modern day, and you know, he was a scholar of the 1900s, he took evolution and said, look, there's lots of good here. And as, as an Orthodox theologian, he addressed a lot of the good of it and said, and you know, maybe we, we need to rethink ourselves a little bit because of that. He is 
I, I still believe that he uh, he really uplifted me at a time when I needed lifted up. Mm-hmm. I, I read everything I can find by him, sometimes mm-hmm. more than once. <laughs> um, I think that for a lot of our listeners, uh, you would assume that the people who have an issue with um, evolution would kind of be that stereotypical um, evangelical um, Bible Belt sort of Christian. We, you know, we can all picture the person in our head, um, um, in stereotypically. Have you ever encountered uh, orthodox uh, critics of uh, uh, <laughs> um, evolution? You don't have to go into who the who's who. I'm not going to name um, but names, but I have been in parishes where the priest has stood up and said that evolution is an absolute falsehood, and you should never even listen to people that talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. That's orthodox priests, and and more than mm-hmm. one, more than one. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there there are there are a number. Well, there's there's a book by Father Seraphim Rose, who is a kind of Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia guy, passed away a number of years ago. He has a very strong stand against evolution. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of his, you know, people who follow his teachings have issues with it. Um, there are many, many. I would say in my youth, it wasn't nearly so bad as it's been. I, I gave a talk on evolution at a Greek Orthodox Church because they invited me to. I got to, to talk specifically about it. I got threatening hate mail in my emails for weeks. Um, so th- there wow. are there are lots of people that have problems with it that are orthodox. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I seem to be able to understand why it popped up in certain fundamentalist traditions in the southern United States in that uh, this sort of literalistic reading of the scriptures is almost a rationalistic response to uh, kind of the scientific enlightenment and those principles, but I'm not exactly sure how it kind of how it manifested itself in orthodoxy. Well, um, think, I'm not sure how that smuggled in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there are a lar- large number of people who accept the fundamentalism in orthodoxy right now. I mean, I think that's that. I think you'll find that, but I think that a few, I mean, really very well-meaning people said that evolution is extremely material. And so, therefore, it makes you accept the materialism over a spirituality. Um, and that's why a lot of Orthodox said, well, it's, it teaches that we're only some sort of like, you know, bones and cells and stuff like that, which is, I mean, evolution doesn't try to explain more than how we got on planet Earth from a biological perspective. And heavens, I wouldn't want scientists to tell us that because... I know what a lot of my scientist colleagues believe, and I would be very afraid of them teaching religion. Mm-hmm. So, um, when it comes to uh, those ar- those orthodox arguments regarding evolution, um, let's say the orthodox arguments that you've heard against evolution, um, have you heard, I guess, any sophisticated ones? Or no, I think often... that one about the materialism is probably the most sophisticated argument that I've heard. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I believe it comes from a good place. It's just um, – it, it's, it's pigeonholing evolution as much as it pigeonholes – as much as, you, as you, you would resist pigeonholing anything, so does it pigeonhole um, mm-hmm. evolution. Um, and, and also, you know, a lot of people complain because 
There's no God in evolution. How can we accept evolution if there's no God in it? And, you know, I, I always make this argument that it's it's not for the scientists to put God in in into our origin stories. It's up to us to do that. It's up to theologians to do that. You do not want the scientists to do that. Um, and, and science can't test that anyway. Um, so, you know, why do you want them to go out far outside of their realm and go into something they don't understand and can't talk about? Um, mm-hmm. but, that, but those are the argument. Those are the two most important arguments I hear. I think a lot of people in our society look to scientists as almost the arbiters of priesthood and truth, um, especially in North America. Um, people will often just say things like, well, science says yeah, or science um, and, is going to solve our problems. Or, I mean, look look at COVID now. You know, science is going to cure everything. We're going to get a vaccine and everybody's going to be fine. And, and, and I mean, that sort of belief in technology over anything else is very frightening, I think, um, for, for anybody. I mean, scientists themselves don't believe that they, that they are the ones that speak truth or anything else. It, it's like a wrong thing for people to put those words in scientists' mouths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often use the expression uh, when I'm talking about me getting older. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, science will catch up. I, you know, I'll, I'll live to 150. Sci- science will catch up. Yeah, and it's um, also the comment that people make about the environment. You know, it's like technology is going to come. It's going to solve all our problems. We don't need to worry. And sorry, we do need to worry. It, it is. It has a bit of that. Um, it has a bit of that religious sense that people are people will often outsource their own, um, I don't know, existential anxieties um, onto uh, those yeah. of us uh, in leadership who are the ones who offer the sacrifice to, uh, you know, atone or whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good good, good way to put it, I think. Um, so I guess uh, you, you talk about a lot of hot button issues, um, things like cloning, things like evolution. So we just talked about evolution. Have there been any other... Um, um, instances in which you've, I guess, been asked to speak or have written a paper or anything that you've gotten like mixed, you know, results or um, or anything like that. Oh, like huge numbers, but uh, I, I, there are some I can talk about and some I would prefer not to talk about. But okay, um, yeah, yeah. But in, in vitro fertilization, for instance, is another one. Okay, mm-hmm. um, where people. You know, especially in North America, there's a practice of in vitro fertilization that's very common. Couples that are unable to have children will frequently do it. And the question becomes, number one, should we allow it? Um, And there are some bishops that actually give a blessing for it. There are some bishops that refuse to give a blessing. And there are some couples that could care less and do it anyway. Um, Then there's the second question about what do we do with the embryos that are left? Um, do you only implant one or two embryos into the um, into, into the woman who's been made to, you know, whose body's been made to believe it's pregnant, or do you uh, throw them away? And that's another a, a, another very controversial topic. So almost any of those are very big hot button issues. I mean, I'll never forget. Actually, in Canada, I gave a talk on stem cells and was explaining like what stem cell technology was, and was actually speaking against using embryonic cells because they're just not very effective for stem cells. And this one woman was publicly saying, I never, I, I don't, I using stem cells is unethical. We should never permit it to happen. And, and I had been trying to make the case that, that there were some approaches that might be 
acceptable for Orthodox. And she was just very vocal. And then she came up to me privately and said, if you wanted to get stem cell work done, where would you go? I mean, you know, like, like, it, like she needs it in her family like, and i yeah, was like asking for a friend yeah exactly exactly it was so funny i mean i i i, don't, I always am shocked at the things that happen um, yeah i i how do you handle the okay so right now you are giving an interview on a on a public facing podcast of course we don't have hundreds of listeners right now well maybe we're close to hundreds of listeners now but i think Given the amount of public writing and teaching and and um, speaking that you do, how do you handle what to say when or um, to what degree are you thoughtful uh, and careful with how you present yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think that it depends upon the forum, right? There are some places where you present where they want you to be provocative. They want to have open discussion on things and where you can sort of test out ideas that you're not even sure you yourself believe, right? So so those kinds of academic situations, they don't usually make their way into the public. Maybe there'll be a paper or a discussion that will come from it. But but those those are kind of meant to be testing grounds. And so in those in those places I tend to be I, I tend to be as provocative as I feel like, and and I normally want to hear other people's perspectives. I try to go them a little bit, right? But um, in situations when you, I talk publicly uh, in front of an audience that's not so closed and is, you know, very a more open kind of audience, um, I normally talk to the priest and or the people that invited me and said, "Look, what kind of audience is this? It, I don't want anybody to be upset." I don't, you know, if you if you have a message and you've and and you've gone over what people are able to hear, then you haven't done well. I mean, when I teach a class, my job is to teach them so they can hear me. If I say a lot of things they can't hear, I haven't done a good job. So I usually try to scale it for what I think people can handle. If I'm asked questions, I will always take it as far as I have to. I'll never forget. I had a Lutheran. Uh, I, I get invited to speak at Lutheran churches because I teach at Lutheran seminary. Lutheran pastor invited me to speak at his church. And he said, Gail, I want you to come and talk about science and the development of life on earth, but I don't want you to use the E word. And I said, What's, what E word are you talking about? He said, evolution. And, and I said, okay, this is going to be rather hard. But I understood that he kind of wanted to present the ideas without putting the label on. So I gave a, a talk and after I'm about like 15, 20 minutes into it, one of my, uh, one of the, one of the people raises her hand and says, excuse me, are you talking about evolution? And I said, well, you got me. That's what I was talking about. And everybody was like, okay. And then they, and it went on fine. No problems. So here was a case where the pastor didn't actually know where, where his parish was sitting when he did this. And I mean, I had people nodding. I kind of knew that they were, you know, you know, following with me and everything else, but it was, it, that was a real, a really funny experience. Yeah. 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 Uh, I have a question about the fact that you are, um, you are a woman in the Orthodox church who has leadership positions in the sense that you teach, uh, you have in, in, um, you have a bit of authority in the, in your, through your education and your position uh, of uh, positions of teaching. 
I know that there are a lot of people, some some on this podcast that I've interviewed before, who simply can't find a place for themselves in the Orthodox Church because of their uh, ideas about how the Orthodox Church kind of limits uh, women. So, yeah, what basically, what's it like being a woman in the <laughs> Orthodox Church? So, uh, you know, I guess it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, if if you're looking for ordination of women, it's just not going to happen. Um, there might be deaconesses. Deaconesses are historically found in the Orthodox Church, and there was a movement to try to get some deaconesses a few years ago from the Church of Alexandria. Um, there certainly is a big movement called the St. Phoebe group in North America that's been working to try to bring in deaconesses. I, I don't do that battle, although I very highly support um, the development of deaconesses in the church. It, it's historically part of our uh, part of our heritage, and we need to reclaim it. Um, we need more people to go out to, to minister to others in the church. And I think there are lots of people who have a hard time being ministered to by a man because of injuries that they've suffered or because of um, you know, problems that they've experienced and they feel like they can relate better to a woman. So I, I believe that we should have deaconesses for sure. Um, I can't do battles on every front. And so I don't, I, I, I don't engage in that battle, although I am supportive. Um, I think, I don't know, I guess I've just sort of been lucky. I mean, I know maybe lucky or blessed, I guess is the better word. Um, in, in the Ukraine Orthodox Church of the USA, I've been blessed with bishops who have always supported my being active. Um, I can imagine if I were in another diocese, they might be stopping me and shutting me up. But my bishops are, they rejoice when I, when I accomplish things. They push me on. They are very, very supportive. And I say that about Metropolitan Constantine, who, um, of, of blessed memory, who was uh, I, I still have a, I still have a voicemail from him talking to me about a book I'd published uh, that I keep and play one every every now and then for encouragement. And my my current bishops as well. And I know it's probably you know politically correct to say your bishops are great, but I mean the truth is my bishops are great. Okay, and because of them, I'm able to do things I don't think I could do so easily in in another diocese. Um, and so then I I worry about other you know, about women that are in other dioceses who can't step up so easily. I've seen a number of initiatives that are starting. Uh, there's a, a group in Chicago under the Greek Archdiocese that I'm a part of called uh, the, the Order of the Murbearing Women, trying to give like grants to women to try to build up programs in their parishes. Um, there are there are quite a few of these initiatives. There's a group in, uh, they're based originally in, in New York City, but they're national called Axia. Um, she is worthy, right? And um, and they're working to try to uh, make for more active women in the Orthodox Church. I think that those initiatives are very, very positive. Um, and I, you know, and I, th I think that when women can pull together a little bit and support each other, that's always a good thing. Am I always proud of the way our Orthodox Church teaches women? No, the answer would be no. There, I mean, I can I've seen far too many difficult situations, women that have been stepped on, pushed down. Um, and and it, it's, it's upsetting. Mm -hmm. 
So we're getting near the end of the public episode here, Dr. Wolfschock. So I am going to uh, tease my audience with uh, a two. Uh, there's two questions that I wrote down before we even met on Zoom here. Two questions that I wrote down that I think uh, would be uh, great uh, conversation starters. And we're going to save these two questions for our Patreon. But I'll give the teaser here, which is, um, would cloned humans have souls? So, you know, the classic barroom question. Uh, would cloned humans have souls? Uh, and then the other one, which I was reflecting on kind of what I wanted to ask you, uh, and it was, uh, what does the church get wrong about science? Um, and, you know, uh, you know, bishops, priests, and deacons are not, sci- well, most of them are not scientists. And um, we often rely on people like you and, and other um scientists who can actually give us accurate information to, to make certain um, pastoral decisions. Um, so yeah, like what does the church get wrong about science or maybe even in the past, what has the church gotten wrong in certain situations and certain times in church history? Um, so those are the two, two big things we're going to talk about in the uh, Patreon episode, but um, to end the public episode, I want to ask, uh, the question, so from where you stand now and moving into the future, is there any aspect uh, of, um, I guess, the theology or scientific knowledge that you, uh, in which you remain fully convinced? That, uh, so kind of pillars of how you conceptualize the world, if that makes sense. Pillars for science or pillars for theology? Uh, whatever you like, you can you can take it take it from there. Well, I actually believe in the teachings of the Orthodox Church, so there's like mm. that, that's that's my biggest pillar. And honestly, yeah. the most important pillar for me is prayer. Um, you know, I think living a life li- like prayer isn't always what we think it is. Sometimes prayer is just being and being quiet and being contemplative. Um, but I find great strength. That's my greatest pillar. If you'd like to listen to the second half of this interview, you can head over to patreon.com slash priest. Your support is what makes this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you 